Hello and welcome to the Rethinking ADHD podcast. My name is Simon Mundy and I am your host. It is clear that ADHD is being talked about much more than ever before. We're hearing about increasing numbers of celebrities and high-profile people being diagnosed, often well into adulthood. But despite the increase in awareness of ADHD, there are still significant misconceptions about what it is, as well as the impact it can have on people's lives and what you can do about it. So this series aims to explore what ADHD is and how it presents itself, challenge some myths and misconceptions about it and outline ways to manage the condition and thrive with it. I'll be speaking to athletes, entrepreneurs, authors, doctors and a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist to hear about their experiences and find out how they learn to flourish while living with ADHD. I'm hosting this series on behalf of QB Tech, who are the leading provider of FDA-cleared objective ADHD tests. In this episode, I'm talking to Catherine Ellison, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who's also a renowned speaker, speechwriter for clients, including Bill Gates and major Silicon Valley investors, and a prolific author. Since receiving her own ADHD diagnosis as an adult, Catherine has written several books on the subject of living with neurodiversity, including Buzz, A Year of Paying Attention, which is all about her experience of being diagnosed with ADHD at the same time as her 12-year-old son and learning tools and strategies to help them both. Catherine used her outstanding journalistic skills to find out everything she could about supporting a child with ADHD, and she shares many of her best lessons in this episode. It really was an absolute pleasure speaking to Catherine, and I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Catherine Ellison, how lovely to see you. I'm so pleased you could join me. How are you? Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Now, you are a very accomplished woman. You're a Pulitzer Prize winner. You're an author. You consult and all sort of things. But as well, you were only diagnosed with ADHD. Am I right? At the age of 48? You're correct. Yes. Wow. That's quite late, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it was. Yes, it was. And when you get diagnosed at that age, it comes with a lot of extra emotions as you look back on your life and a lot of things make sense that never did before. Before that, am I right in saying you were aware that something was a little awry? A little awry is a little bit of an understatement. I would do things like in college, I remember driving my bike into a parked car. Um, I fell into a manhole in Nicaragua and broke my kneecap after I was chasing the newly elected president who was on crutches at the time because she just had knee surgery. I could tell you so many ridiculous stories. And nobody would have believed when I finally did get diagnosed, and I got diagnosed in about six different ways, nobody would, in my family especially, would believe it. But I knew in my heart the, the truth of it. So what did you suspect it was before that? clumsiness, stupidity, carelessness, you know, just all sorts of character flaws, mm. bad person in, in oh. so many ways, things that I had to hide. I, I just was continually embarrassed. There would have been a lot of shame there then. Yes, you got it, shame. And so when you got your diagnosis, how much of a cathartic release did you experience? Well, as I mentioned, I got diagnosed about five different ways because I wanted to write this book about ADHD and I wanted to have the creds. I wanted to be able to say that I'd been diagnosed and nobody in my inner circle, they just said, oh, you're, you know, you're just doing too much or whatever, you know, you're, you're, you're just a little scattered. And so I really wanted that diagnosis. 
I, but I remember things like I, I write about it in, in my book, Buzz, mm-hmm. uh, about when I was um, taking a test with, with a friend of mine who was a neuroscientist. And you had to like press a button quickly if, if a line was longer than another line. And it was like a really simple task. And I was in a dark room. And I just remember so clearly feeling like, I can't do this simple thing. And it was, it was a feeling that had haunted me throughout my life. So yeah. with the diagnoses came both a feeling of, of a little bit of relief because, oh, I could say that it's ADHD and not all these other bad things. But also a lot of pain, you know, when I thought back to my life and thought, wow, you know, a lot of things could have been different. And did you have a sense of grief? Yeah, I would say grief is is very common, and I and I did feel um, some of that. Um, but I, you know, on the, when I look back at my life today, I feel pretty good about a lot of things, and I wouldn't want to change it. No. But at the time when it hits you, you just think, "Wow, I've spent so many years, you know, blaming myself and feeling so bad about myself, and I could have gone without that for sure." Absolutely. You mentioned your book, Buzz, A Year of Paying Attention, which I know has had a huge impact on so many other parents and was, you know, such a transformative experience for you and your son. And we'll come to that. But I actually want to go back further to when you were little, because I've heard you talk about growing up in you had an authoritarian father and you had a bit of a rebellious streak. But at the same time, like you were a high achiever yourself to the degree that you got into Stanford. And, and what I find interesting is that certainly at that time, and even now, that doesn't tally with what people think about ADHD. Well, it really doesn't correlate at all with intelligence. So you'll find some people who might be very gifted academically or in other ways, but, but have these deficits that can be hidden. My son, for instance, who I call Buzz in, in the book, when we tested him, he, he had a huge IQ and very slow processing speed. So mm. that would make his teachers say, you're just not trying hard enough or you're not listening to me or you don't care. And that's where I think the real trouble comes in for people with ADHD. Just explain what you mean by processing speed. Your ability to take in what someone is saying or what's happening in the world. And it can be a real social problem because 90% of social interaction are, is this small talk that can get very boring. Unless we're really tuned in, we can seem very rude. And how about some of those other traits, like, for example, interrupting or finishing people's sentences? Because you don't strike me as a sort of person, just from speaking to you now and from listening to you talk in various other platforms, as being like that. Or am I wrong? Oh, you're putting your hand over your mouth. I'm wrong. <laughs> I have to work hard to control myself. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, it's it's taken some work. I used to interrupt people all the time and it's very rude. I think pr- probably the domain in which it can be the most painful is with social interactions because people just don't understand. And you might forget their birthdays or you, you'll mm. forget what they just said to you. And it's sometimes really hard to maintain close friendships. You have to work harder. And during your time at Stanford, I know you've spoken about about struggling on that front. It was your TED talk where you spoke about there had to be a reason why I lost so many sunglasses and and friends. And so that was something that really impacted you in terms of your relationships. Yeah, I had to work really hard because friendship is super important to me, as I think it is to most humans. And I realized at some point that I just wasn't very good at it. 
And for many, many years, that was okay because I was hyper-focused on my career. But once I came back to the United States and started raising a family, and then friends are super important, I think that's when it really hit me that I needed to do a lot of extra work. Sticking with Stanford and moving on, because you know, while at Stanford, I think it was at Stanford that you rode your bike into the back of a car, which you've already mentioned. And you mentioned one or two other things that the manhole will come to that. But, but after Stanford, you, you know, you were, you were quickly snapped up as a journalist. I got to interrupt you here. I would not say quickly snapped up. It was a recession. I thought I was, I was going to get a position at the Washington Post like immediately. But I, after doing all these like really glorified internships at Newsweek and foreign policy, you know, I was strutting around. Nobody would hire me. And I had to write to, I tell my kids this because they're just going out into the working world. I had to write like 150 letters, actual letters, and go all over the place interviewing. And I finally found a temporary job at the San Jose Mercury News. So that's what happened. I tell you that that shows the passion that you had though for journalism to write that many letters because listen I know from my own journalism experience a lot of people fall by the wayside pretty early actually when they realize you know what is required it's not necessarily the best pay it's not necessarily the best hours a lot of people fall by the wayside so the fact that you went to those lengths really show your your passion and your calling for it and you survived some early skirmishes I think it's fair to say as well right because while you were working for that newspaper, you've mentioned putting your foot in it metaphorically um, and literally in different areas. But this was perhaps the most significant mistake of all of them, where you just slightly got your reporting in the paper wrong about a murder trial. Slightly, yeah, just slightly. Right. Um, I have to say that I actually wrote a book about this, too. I know. Mothers and Murderers, because there was a I was covering criminal courts, which, I mean, reporting in general for a person with ADHD, it's it's a natural profession because there's constant novelty, there's adventures, there's drama. And I was finding all this on the criminal court beat. I was so happy and I was doing so well. My stories were getting on the front page, but every once in a while I'd make a stupid mistake. After a bunch of these where I was already in trouble, I was reporting on, a. this is a complicated case, but basically a man was on trial for killing, for hiring two goons to come to California and kill his wife's ex-husband. But the wife was not on trial. And at one point, I misparaphrased the prosecutor in the case saying that the wife was charged with murder. And she immediately sued me and the paper for $11 million. And I thought my career was over. I was sure I was going to be fired. It was horrible. Wow. And it did lead you to writing the book. And the incredible thing was, I'm right in saying she was eventually found guilty of murder. She sure was. Yeah. 10 years later. So you're onto something. Yeah. (laughs) Your your intuition, I think, must have been playing a part there. I think that can be a gift of ADHD that sometimes you are so open to your environment. You see so many things that maybe other people don't, but I should never have reported it. But she was found guilty and and away for life. Yeah. Wow. And you weren't fired there and you had to prove yourself. So you went off and became a foreign correspondent, which is where you won your Pulitzer Prize. But it's also where you fell down the manhole and, and broke your knee. So how close are we talking with these two two big events? OK, well, I started to prove myself. I started going to Central America during the wars of the 1980s on my vacation time. And I gradually convinced my editors that they could trust me again. 
And the other thing, the other fantastic thing about going to freelance in Central America was that I met my husband in 1982. And that's been really a key to surviving ADHD and motherhood and a lot of other things because he's a fantastic person. Um, So in a way, when I look back at that stupid mistake that I made, it really was in many ways a gift because it put my life on a different track than it was going in many ways. So after I reported on Central America, the newspaper hired me to be the Mexico bureau chief. But between those two things, uh, they assigned me to a project where we looked into the hidden wealth of Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos, who were then the dictators of the Philippines. They were taking money out of their treasury and investing it in the United States in real estate. And that's the story that won the Pulitzer. That's a hell of a scoop. I mean, how much work had to go into that? Well, I was working with a couple other reporters that who were also, I mean, they were fabulously talented. Pete Carey is the most amazing investigative reporter I've ever seen. The two of us were in San Jose and Lou Simons was in Tokyo sending us stuff. And um, Pete and I spent six months, which I, I don't know if that ever happens in newspapers today, but they just gave us carte blanche to forget all our other reporting duties and just focus on this. We traveled all over the United States. We looked at real estate records. Eventually, I went to the Philippines five or six times, and we talked to opposition exiles and basically wrote this wrote this three-day series about just detailing how they were taking the money, where it was going, all the phony shell corporations they were using, and what effect it was having in the Philippines. Well, it's remarkable to win a, a Pulitzer. And, but as challenging and as gratifying as your journalism was, it was not as challenging as what you experienced with your son. As you say, you call him Buzz in the book, A Year of Paying Attention. I know this is on re-release, so first of all, I would encourage anyone to get it because I do know what an impact it's had. But I heard you talk about one episode in particular that precipitated it, that really resonated again with me because I was very attached to my Game Boy growing up. And... <laughs> and But that said, if my mum and dad had taken it away from me as a punishment, I'm not sure I would have called the police. So that must have been pretty hard for you. (laughs) That was, there were many incidents that made me realize I had to kind of start paying a lot more attention to what was going on with him. But when he was nine years old, you're right. He called me a word that I won't use on your podcast. And I took away the Game Boy. You know, I was mad. I mean, I was incapable of being calm with him. And that was a central problem. So I took away the Game Boy and he ran and called 911, which is in our country, you call the police. And the police did come and they put my husband in one room and me in another, and they interviewed us both. We thought they were going to take him away. And then I heard a policeman in the other room saying, she took away your what? (laughs) So that was, that was good. But there were a number of things that made me know, and it was such a blessing to get that book contract. And so could you just talk to me about writing the book, finding out about ADHD, finding out about your son's ADHD, kind of the timeline, as it were, and how this evolved? It was one of the easiest proposals I've ever written. It was so close to my heart, and it was so urgent for me. I loved being a mother. I loved my kids so much. I was astounded by how much that it changed my life to become a mother. And I didn't want to blow it. I wrote the proposal and it was a huge blessing to have this one year where I would be forced, supposedly, I didn't, 
but <laughs> the rule for me was that I was going to put everything aside and just focus on this. And I ended up doing work for Google and I was doing a book for the Nature Conservancy. I, I did do all these other things, but I kept pushing myself back to a kind of a narrative where both my, my son had gotten his diagnosis and I'd gotten mine by that point. So I divided the book into like different chapters. One was really looking at what is ADHD? What is the history of it? The huge controversy over medication, because I was in the throes, like so many parents are, of this huge responsibility. Do I give my vulnerable, innocent child medication? It's got to be my decision. It can't be the child's at this point. It's, it's, it's huge to take that on when there's so much conflicting information out there. And what else? I went to a five-day meditation retreat to try to calm down. It was a lot of metacognition for a year. So even when I was doing all this ridiculous extra stuff, I kept saying, I'm doing all this ridiculous extra stuff. Like there's even a chapter in there that talks about Pete Carey, who I mentioned to you before, the great investigative reporter, had a wonderful world word, chronophage, yes. which is time eater. And at one point, with my sister, I wrote down a list of everything that I was doing. And I didn't think I was doing that much. But when I looked at the list, I could see that there were so many things that were distracting me from what I really wanted to do and what was really making me happiest. Just writing down that list was a terrific exercise. I wondered where the word chronophage had come from, because obviously I know that's one of your three hard-earned lessons. We'll come to that a, a little bit later. But obviously your first priority was your son, and finding out what was going on and getting him some help. How quickly did it do a 180 and, and make you realize this is as much me? Because he was right. diagnosed first, no? He was diagnosed first. Right. So like millions of parents, I was standing over his shoulder while he was answering the questions. And I realized that every one of them applied to me too. And I know you, you feel a sense of gratitude to your son for the fact that he was in a way showing signs of, of being difficult, i.e. the 911 call that eventually led you to a life-changing realization. That's true. I mean, I, you know, I'd been diagnosed, but I really ended up taking it so seriously. I made it sort of a niche in my working life thereafter. But where I'm really super grateful to my son, you know, number one, just for what you said, for causing me to really focus on this, but also providing so much funny material. I mean, he was hilarious. I was rereading this last night. And just the things he did and and said, and, you know, it's poignant because in a lot of things that he said, I realized he was trying to get my attention, yeah. you know, like before I went to the meditation retreat, he hid a walkie talkie under my pillow. <laughs> and the night before I was just going to sleep, I heard it squawk, you know, and he started asking me, so you're going to be away for a week. You're not going to talk to anybody. Doesn't that sound kind of boring? Are you going to come home early? <laughs> you know? And just oh, when I, I look back, you know, he was really doing a lot, even though he was driving me out of my mind because he was he was in so much trouble in school. It was just constant frustration. But but he was also telling me what he needed. He was reminding me that this was my job, that I had to tune into him. Yeah. You know so much about ADHD. You've educated yourself so much for the Burke Buzz. And obviously there are three understood to be fundamentally three core ADHD traits. Which do you resonate most with and which would you say Buzz does or did? <laughs> you know, ADHD is, is pretty amorphous. I, mean, I know you've looked into it and 
it can be pretty subjective and overlap with all these other things like anxiety mm. and you know even sleep problems and you don't know which actually caused the other thing people with ADHD often end up having all these comorbid uh, conditions you know like anxiety depression in women who are often diagnosed much later they're, they're terrible, some terrible outcomes. There can be a lot of suicide attempts and eating disorders. So I'm, I'm getting way off your question, but the three core, um, you know, I'm, I'm very distractible as we've been talking about. My son was two. How did both of your diagnoses impact then your relationship, which was obviously difficult at the time? How quickly did it change? How quickly did you learn, for example, the, the importance of staying calm, not reactive, and putting that into place. How fast was that? I think the whole book is really, it's more about me, I think, than about him. And it's its all about that thing about learning to be calm. And that's a lesson that I had to learn over and over and over. And I'm still having to learn it. You and I were talking before, I've got a bumper sticker that says, oh. mistrust your sense of urgency, which was the best thing my psychiatrist ever said to me. And I made it into bumper sticker and gave it to him. And people actually stopped me in traffic to say that it means something to them. Because I think, especially in our society where we're trained every day to look at our phones and, oh my God, what's happening now? And what's the news and what's the text? We're, we're almost trained to have more of a sense of urgency. So I really have to continue to cultivate awareness of where I'm getting sucked into that and how my natural proclivities would increase that problem. I love your bumper sticker poster. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And I know this is one of your three hard-earned lessons. Before we dig into the other two, have you never thought about putting it on a t-shirt? I mean, you would you would make an absolute <laughs> fortune. <laughs> sure, right. <laughs> Honestly, if you don't, I'm gonna. Um, and then your other two as well. Um, well, actually, no, within that, not multitasking. You speak about not multitasking. This is another thing that we all need to slap around the face around about, right? <laughs> I can't avoid some multitasking, but I really delved into the scientific literature on it. And you don't really multitask. You're switching between tasks. Nobody's doing two things at once. So I don't know if you've ever had this feeling, like sometimes I'll be driving and I'll be listening to a podcast and I'll realize wow, I have no memory of going over the Golden Gate Bridge, which is kind of spooky, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think we do that when we're talking to people or when we're working, you know, we just shut, we have to shut off part of our brain and it makes you dumber in a way. It's, it's so much healthier, calmer and more productive to try to just do one thing at a time. But again, that's a lesson I have to teach myself every day. And again, we live in a, a time and a culture where all the forces are working in direct opposition to that, aren't they? With, you know, email, social media, Slack, rolling news, as you said, it's so hard to remind yourself of that and not be sucked in by it. And then you also do talk about your chronophages. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know how to pronounce it because I've never heard it before I read it in your work. So yeah, this is basically a time audit, right? I know you've already spoken about it already, but I'm just thinking in terms of anyone listening, being able to get some benefit from it. It's a time eater, chronophage, right? right? So if you look objectively as possible about your life, I saw a cartoon recently by somebody with ADHD who said, my new year's resolution is to do more things that make me happy. And I mean, I guess, especially at my age, I want to focus on that. And I'm 
lucky that to a certain extent I can, I've got a lot of work I have to do, but when I, I have to bring myself and I think it's a really good practice over and over again to what did I do today? You know, like what was my day made up of? And, you know, I mean, this can, an obvious example is doom scrolling, right? On your phone. Like only recently have I discovered this um, screen time thing on your phone function where you can look and see how many times you pick up your phone and how how much time you dedicate to it. And it's pretty frightening if you look Mm. at it. So I think phones to a great extent are chronophages. I, yeah. I believe in keeping up with the news, but you can do it in a in a calmer, more methodical fa- fashion, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I've interviewed Johan Hari, Professor Cal Newport about this very thing, you know, but the problem I suppose with, with phones is that they're using technology and the sort of intelligence that understands that we want to stop this. We're working against really powerful forces in short. It's really hard. I've got myself one of those... Um, uh, mobile phone cases you know you put it in and you lock it for a couple of hours I can't oh, recommend it highly enough honestly oh wow I'd have so much trouble with that <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would really be painful yeah but sure you're, right. you're absolutely right I think that there's it's really awful because I think that there are these people in corporations thinking about what motivates people and it's fear and anger mm. and so when you pick up your phone you're automatically whipped into that emotional state which somebody else wants you to be in rather than the state you might have woken up in. Absolutely. And they're just doing that because it's it's about keeping your attention there for as long as possible. I think ADHD, people with ADHD are like canaries in the in the coal mine. Yeah, I've heard it's, you say this, yeah. I think we're more sensitive to stuff like this. And, and maybe a lot of us are pioneers in calling attention to the fact that this is taking over society in our brains. Absolutely. Kind of- so we've mentioned two of your hard-earned lessons. What's number three? I forget. <laughs> you must know. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Hard earned, right? Surround no. yourself with kindness. Oh, yeah, right. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so just explain what that means. People with ADHD, one of the, the terrible things I found out is, it, and especially kids in school, will receive many times more negative feedback comments than positive ones. And one of the things I learned with my son was to go to his teachers and say, what did he do right today? You know, after they're complaining that his handwriting looks like he's drunk and, you know, all these things, I was like, what did he do right? You know, what do you, what is, what does he do that you like? Right. So when I say surround yourself in kindness, just be with kindness, just be very conscious of what kind of feedback you're getting and what kind of feedback you're accepting for yourself and people that you love and when I talked about my wonderful husband, I think every day about a, a lot of other people I might have married who were much more critical, less tolerant. And somehow he is an incredibly patient person, which drives me crazy in some ways. But on net, the net effect is that I can count on him to be kind. And when you're living with somebody, a lot of people with ADHD, I think, gravitate to people with OCD or autism, you know, are going to be a lot more rigid and judgmental. And we think that they're going to help us, right, be better in the world. But it's really up to us to be better in the world. And I think the people closest to you should be loving and kind and constant. Wow, that's a really profound comment. So you talked about your three hard-earned lessons. What advice, though, would you have for perhaps, you know, a parent who who has a, a child with ADHD, um, 
or that suspects their child might have ADHD. Having written that book and all the time you spent researching it and living it, uh, are there any gems and words of wisdom you could share for them? You know, that was the whole point of Buzz. I'm happy to share some things, but I felt so lucky and privileged that I could, I was in the position of getting a book contract because I imagine so many parents who get hit with this diagnosis for their kid, they have a full-time job, they have other children, they're overwhelmed, and they some and they have to make their way through all these controversies and all these conflicting opinions about medication, about what to do with education, all, you know, should I hire a tutor? Should I send to special school? And 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 what is it anyway? So I tried to really hash that out, but I'll tell you about one thing that I really focused on in the book, which is there's this thing called the ADHD industrial complex, or at least I call it that, where there's so many people who see us as a perfect audience because we're impulsive, distractible, up all night, looking at the internet, desperate, and they want to sell us things. And what I was able to do in this year when I forced myself to focus and take the time was look at a lot of things out there that I was very tempted to try. One example is the door method. I don't know if you've heard about that, but it's it's a very, you spend thousands and thousands of dollars a year on programs that are supposed to strengthen your cerebellum, right? It's And I don't know if this program even exists anymore, but when I was writing the book, it was very popular and a lot of people were doing it. And I was kind of all set to try it out when I read more and more. And you just find these things are like hokey, right? And but but they suck people in because you think if I spend enough, you know, maybe swimming with dolphins will will help my child. You know, it's it's just I have to do more because this is a crisis. So they 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 work on you that way. There's I sometimes when I talk about when I give talks about ADHD, I have a slide of a book cover that says Dr. Bob's Guide to Cure ADHD in Eight Days, right? Because that's, of course, what we want is to get rid of it mm. in eight days, or we want that pill, right? And there's no silver bullet. I mean, medication can help some people fantastically, but it's not going to help everybody, and it's not going to do everything. So unfortunately, you a parent who will often also have ADHD because it's very genetic, it's very hereditary, um, has to figure out, has to calm down enough to figure out which of these things make sense, who can I trust, what do I do, and um, it it can be really overwhelming. Hmm. You said obviously you spent those seven days in a meditation retreat. Now I did the eight week mindfulness based stress reduction course yeah. five or six years ago, the John Kabat-Zinn one. And uh, again, my wife noticed the benefits before me, but certainly, you know, I don't get to do it so much now because we've got a, a baby and it's just too busy, oh. or maybe that's an excuse, but I certainly noticed the benefits. But w- what about mindfulness and meditation and ADHD? D- how much of a benefit do you think that can help? I think it can be hugely beneficial. It's exactly what we need. The problem is that we're just wrong. To, <laughs> as I discovered on that meditation retreat, it's really hard for people with ADHD to just sit still. So there are alternatives. I mean, I think meditation is a great thing if you can do it. Neurofeedback, there's types of biofeedback that can be very meditative. Walking can be meditative. One study I found said that there was an experiment in which they had people focus on the soles of their feet, and it actually reduced conflict and aggression. Wow. It's, it's a fascinating study. But, and, and all these things are alternatives to people who just 
quail at the thought of, of sitting with their own thoughts, you know, sitting still, but it is a great thing if you can, if you can do it. I just want to say, let yourself off the hook. If it's impossible, it might well be impossible, but it's definitely worth a try. So just quickly on that soles of the feet thing. So just when you're walking or any time, just taking your attention to the sensations on the sole of the feet. But you're supposed to do it for some for some time. But okay. focus. I don't know why it's easier than focusing on on that than breathing. But I've tried yeah. it a few times, and it's it's before I've fallen asleep, and it's very calming. That's really interesting. Actually, I sometimes do the inner body awareness where, like, again, in, in bed, if I wake up in the middle of the night, you know, rather than being stuck up in the head, I just feel the the inner aliveness of my body. And I find that works. So that sounds like a variation of that. Right. I'm going to give it a try. I'll report back. Catherine, last few things. If you hadn't got your diagnosis and if your, your son hadn't got his diagnosis, how do you think your life would look now? Um. It's hard to imagine, but I was very scared. I mean, I can't understate the urgency of my son's situation at the time. He was near the point of killing himself or, or being violent to somebody else. And it was urgent that I find some way to focus on it. And so I'm so grateful that I got my diagnosis in his because I think once you get your diagnosis and I think you're in the process of learning this, it opens a world of resources. It does allow you to kind of zero in on a number of traits and really be conscious of them and learn about what you can do about them, like focusing on the soles of your feet. And so that's really, really helpful. So I feel like for both my son and myself, and especially our relationship, which is not going really great today, and he's doing great. It was absolutely critical. So getting a diagnosis then, in conclusion, is absolutely vital. It's fundamental. Yeah. Life-changing. Early diagnosis is really, you know, it's a serious thing. I don't think everybody has it. I think it might be both overdiagnosed and underdiagnosed right now. But the earlier you can get it. I mean, it, it really might be helpful for children as a rule to be screened in grade school so they can get help they need earlier. Wow. Well, listen, Catherine, I so appreciate, first of all, speaking to you. I so appreciate all the books you've written, particularly Buzz, A Year of Paying Attention. I appreciate all the work you're doing in the ADHD field and, and being such an advocate there, as well as all the other plates you keep spinning. But if people want to find out more about your work about your books and and read some more where should they go oh well you can go to my website thank you so much for all of that www.catherineellison.com Catherine with a k um i also have a dedicated facebook page for people with adhd where i try to keep current and contact me through my website i always love to hear from people well, listen, Catherine, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. It really has. I, I loved researching your story. So much of it just really impacted and resonated so much. So I'm very grateful for your time. And uh, yeah, nothing else to say apart from thank you. You are super impressive. I'm just, I'm in awe of how well you prepared for this and how much fun this was. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rethinking ADHD podcast. If you have any questions, please do get in touch. I'm at Simon Mundy on social media or head to the QB Tech website. Links are in the show notes. In the next episode, I'm talking to Casey Davis, a licensed professional counsellor, author, 
speaker, and the brain behind the mental health platform, Struggle Care. Until then, thanks for listening and goodbye.